What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by my man, Brandon Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, as always, man, thank you for being back. Absolutely, my friend. Good to be here. Always nice catching up. Always, dude. Um, Anything new that's been going on with you lately that you want to fill us in on? It's kind of like your weekly check-in to the podcast here. Right? Actually, yes. I have something that I can announce now that it's August. So I just got released as the headlining article and contributor for the Alan Aragon Research Review. So I did a contribution to the research review. Anyone out there that knows Alan Aragon, he was the first person within our industry to do an evidence-based research review that goes over the research, that does things on a monthly basis. And since that, we've had other spinoffs like Mass and like James Krieger's Whiteology and a lot of great contributions to the evidence-based scene. And you know, honestly, I have been um, a follower, a mentee. Um, you know, a fan even of Alan since 2006. So I originally discovered him, I was uh, ending high school or I was in high school and I discovered him on the bodybuilding.com forums. And so I've been reading his stuff since back then. Uh, it was him, it was Lane Norton, who was under the uh, the name Straight Flex. I don't know if you, you were ever on the forums, Jeremiah, but I mean, we're going back 16 plus years. And so to have Alan, um, lately he's been doing some some mentoring with me. Um, just helping me you know, analyze research a little bit more and really help me go from, you know, my whole goal with everything that I do is to take information research and bridge the gap and bring it to the application. Because I am a coach I'm about being in the trenches. I always think, and I always say this to my clients as well, knowledge without application is meaningless. And it's not that I don't have an immense amount of respect for researchers because I do, you know, I, I really do enjoy the research that they put out. But I'm always looking for external validity and ability. I'm really into practical research and what's called translational research. So translational research is stuff that is applicable to the clientele that we work with and that we can translate from in the research lab into the field. And so Alan has been helping me with that. But he asked me you know, last month if I would you know, be interested in contributing. But it was under the premise that I had to go through the uh, research review process. So there is a peer review process. Alan, you know, we'll rip up your paper, like whatever you submit to him. So, um, you know, I was kind of nervous about the process. It's been a long time since I've written something of that formal capacity. And I decided to do it on energy flux, which you guys, the audience will be very familiar with. I have, you know, done numerous podcasts on it, but the thing is energy flux is a concept. When I started utilizing it as an approach with clients, I didn't even have a name for it. I just Mm -hmm. used the name neat. Um, energy flux, the official term wasn't termed until 2018. So when you go to do an article for a research review, you have to use research that's exactly reflective of the term that you're using. So I only had four years to pull from. So the Bassett study that I speak about with the Amish, I couldn't use. Uh, the Blue Belial uh, study that I use with the Bengali mill workers, I couldn't use. So a lot of my resources that I often cite, because it doesn't say energy flux in it, I couldn't get it past the, review, you know, the peer review process. So it was really interesting. I had to go back to the drawing board and I looked up even more research and learned even more about energy flux. But altogether, I got great feedback from Alan. He put me, you know, the contributing author. And then I also, it was, it was coincidental. The other contributor this month was Stan Efferding, who is someone that I've went to seminars. I've done a training seminar with. So it was, it was awesome. Just, you know, these are guys in their fifties. They've done so much for this field and just to be able to be in the same category and to contribute to the same publication as them was, was something that was really a, a, a headlining point for me. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Congrats on that again. Um, I know earlier in the year we were having a conversation around, I, I was saying like, man, I see you kind of becoming like an Allen in the future. And it's been cool to see. You like, said that exact comment. 
he, it's cool, been cool to see like over the last few months since then. Like I know he's always sharing your stuff and like you two really build a personal relationship. And it's, it's really cool to see you kind of on that path, man. So that's, it's awesome. Um, I will actually, I'll link that up in the show notes, of course, if any of the listeners want to awesome, check that man. out as well. But I'm so to get appreciate into this it. topic, dude. Um, this is something that's come up quite a bit, actually. It was ironic that you emailed me about this because I was in the middle of writing an email to a client about this exact topic, actually. Because um, personally, I know there was a study that's been popular lately about us being able to maintain muscle mass potentially on one ninth of the volume that it takes to build. And that's something that I've gotten quite a few questions about and I was actually meaning to ask you about. So I'm really excited to dig into this topic. So again, the topic for today is how to maximize muscle retention while dieting. So to kick this off, can you just talk us through the differences between weight loss and fat loss and why we need to differentiate between the two when we're entering a fat loss phase? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when most clients come to me and say that they have the goal of losing weight, and I'm sure this is something that you get an email about, a consultation call, a Skype call about all the time, what they really mean is that they want to lose body fat and improve their overall body composition so they can look better and feel better. And it may sound like semantics, but it's really important before we go into this topic to realize that weight loss and fat loss are two different goals that yield two different physical outcomes and two different looks. Because if we really look at it, losing weight is purely based on your scale readings. Um, However, your weight is comprised of much more than just fat mass as it also encompasses fat-free mass and fat-free mass is made up of muscle mass, your organs, bones, glycogen, water content. So there's much more than just fat mass. So when people are thinking about scale weight, like I can dehydrate you today, Jeremiah, I'm doing your nutrition. So I can tell you, listen, we're not going to do, we're going to restrict water. I'm going to glycogen deplete you. So I'm going to take out all your carbohydrates from your diet and tomorrow you're going to be lighter. Your body composition is not going to have changed at all. You would have lost no body fat and you probably would look flat and would actually look worse. So we have to be very specific. And I like using the correct vocabulary when I speak with clients because words have meaning. So the issue with setting a purely weight loss goal and chasing a lower weigh-in is when you're trying to improve your physique is that type of approach leads you to track your progress solely by what the scale tells you. And I'm sure you can relate to this and so many people out there. If you guys, we are not our scale weight. Scale weight just pretty much dictates our gravitational pull. You know, and that's all it's telling you. And so I think many need to realize that these lower scale weight readings could be coming from a loss of various factors like the ones I listed above, which include a loss of muscle, which we want to avoid losing as it will negatively impact not only the look of our physiques, but, or, you know, we could also be losing, like I mentioned to you, muscle, uh, loss of muscle glycogen, which will negatively impact our training performance and recovery if you deplete these stores for a prolonged and continuous period of time. And I also find that when individuals take a purely weight loss based approach, it leads many of them to follow approaches, which cause the most scale weight loss on a weekly basis, such as ketogenic diets. So that's hugely popular, especially right now. I have so many times I'll have a client come to me and say that they're either on a low carb or a no carb diet, or they follow a ketogenic approach and they're four weeks in, they're six weeks in and they're finding success with it. And it's not that I ever want to, it's not that I want to isolate a particular approach and demonize it because it isn't nutrition should not be looked at in black and white context. But a lot of times many don't realize that the reason they're seeing so much quote unquote progress on the scale in this initial phase of starting a ketogenic diet is because they've cut out all the carbohydrate consumption and depleted their glycogen stores, which has lost led to a loss in water that comes along with carbohydrate storage. So what they're seeing is mostly a loss of water weight, not actual body fat. 
And this is why those entering a fat loss phase need to focus on losing body fat if their goal is to actually improve the look of their physique. So when we're taking a fat loss focused approach, you know, you need to focus on purely losing body fat and maintaining the muscle tissue you've worked so hard to build as that is an approach that will yield your best physique and look to date. So this is why I specifically reinforce with all my clients that I work with that we need to stop chasing weight loss in the scale and relying so heavily on what the scale says. And in sh- instead, let's shift our focus to losing body fat and using a multitude of metrics such as their photos, their performance in the gym, and then also the way their clothes are fitting them to judge their physique progress. Absolutely, man. And I'll say this is one of the biggest talking points we have with new clients as well. And we work with mostly women. And I found a lot of times to achieve the goal physique, many times for women, like the the actual weight is higher than the number that they might have in their head. Because a lot of times that comes with building a decent amount of muscle mass as well. And like to your point as well, very often the diet that will yield the quickest weight loss isn't the diet that will also yield the best result at the end of the fat loss phase. And I think that's a very important thing for people to understand, right? As you refer to like all these diets, we could hop on keto for 30 days and you could lose weight probably much quicker than many of these different approaches will take. But will that give you the best physique you actually want at the end of the fat loss phase? So I wanted to dig into then why is maintaining muscle during a diet so important? Absolutely. So muscle in and of itself is the most important aspect of our physique. So it's essential to maintain it during a diet. Because if you want to build a physique you're proud of, you need to build your foundation. And part of that is first by building muscle. So most people think that they want to lose weight, but what they don't realize and understand is if you don't have or maintain the muscle you you do have during a diet, you will not achieve the look you want, even if you do go get to your goal weight. So I'm sure you can relate to this. I have many people that come to me that tell me I want, you know, females will always say 120 pounds or males will say, I want to be this weight or lose this amount of weight. And they're only focused on that weight. Whereas we should be focused on a body composition. And I don't mean by a body fat percentage because that is, you know, really hard to measure and really inaccurate. What we should be looking for is a look, a, a look in the mirror, a feeling, you know, how do you feel? How are you performing? And so maintaining a uh, muscle during a diet is essential for so many reasons. Maintaining our muscle helps to maintain our resting metabolic rate as our amount of fat-free mass, which includes our muscle tissue, is the strongest correlate of how many calories we burn per day in terms of both our metabolic rate and our total daily energy expenditure. And in research, we see that there's a linear relationship between our levels of fat-free mass and our energy expenditure. As the more fat-free mass you have, the more calories you're going to burn per day. And this is pretty much because muscle burns approximately three times as many calories at rest as fat does. So it's the most metabolically active tissue that we can build. And a huge component of this is a lot of people don't realize that muscle is our biggest organ in our body. It actually accounts for approximately 40% of our body weight. So your level of muscle mass will generally account for approximately 22% of your resting energy expenditure. And then also muscle in and of itself accounts for 69% of the difference that we see in resting metabolic rate between individuals. So despite two people being the same weight, if one has significantly more muscle mass than the other, they will have a significantly higher metabolic rate and burn more calories at rest each day and thus be able to eat more than the person with less muscle, which is why it's so important to preserve muscle, especially during a diet, because if you don't have a lot of muscle, mass, you're going to have to diet on much lower calories. 
And another huge component of muscle retention is we also see that when someone loses muscle during a diet, they're predisposed to experiencing what's called hyperphagia. And this is an extreme hunger that continues to persist until they regain the lost mass, the, the lost lean mass that they've lost during the diet. And so this overwhelming feeling of hunger is what can lead to the body fat overshooting effect, which actually we did an episode about mm-hmm. last summer. And for anyone that hasn't listened to that, that's a situation where someone ends up, ends a diet and quickly regains body fat and body weight in a rapid manner and ends up regaining a greater amount of fat mass than they had prior to starting the diet. So pretty much basically what you end up doing is you overshoot your body fat percentage and end up at a fatter point than you started. So we want to do whatever we can to avoid muscle loss as losing muscle will result in you not only not attaining the look you want from a physique standpoint, so you're not getting the benefits from the work that you're putting in, you're going to also see a larger drop in metabolic rate during the diet itself. And you're also going to experience a greater level of hunger which can not only make the diet itself more difficult because it's going to be harder to adhere to your calorie budget, but it's also going to predispose you to fat regain after the fat loss phase has ended. Absolutely. And from that explanation, it's so easy to see why so many people can get stuck in a cycle where like, hey, I follow this extremely aggressive diet. Maybe you lost a lot of muscle mass. You gain back more body fat than you had the previous time, but you also have less muscle mass. So the next time you diet, it's even harder. And then like just kind of getting constantly stuck in the cycle of like every time I try to diet, it gets a little bit harder. My metabolic rate is a little bit lower. I keep overshooting. It's definitely a vicious cycle. So again, like a very compelling argument for why maximizing muscle retention during a fat loss phase is so important. Um, Can you talk us through then how muscle loss actually occurs? Absolutely. So like if we were to think about it from like a physiological perspective, mechanistically, muscle loss comes from being in a catabolic state. So you're breaking down more tissue and being in a catabolic state is essentially when our rates of muscle protein breakdown consistently exceed our rates of muscle protein synthesis. So we're essentially breaking down and catabolizing more muscle than we're actually building. And muscle loss can happen in a few different situations, but the ones that I see most common are when someone's in a massive deficit and they, they're not eating sufficient protein. So that's one that I see very commonly. People come to me and they're already in that situation. Like they've went into a crash diet and they haven't prioritized a high protein intake. Or when someone enters a deficit and isn't training properly, or they're not being active on a daily basis, as we need a sufficient amount of stimulus to maintain our muscle tissue. But, you know, I, I do want to make this apparent. I'm not like, you know, we're doing this episode and this was actually, this actually came from a bunch of DMs that I got. So yesterday I hit up Jeremiah, we were emailing back and forth with his check-in and I was like, listen, I had all these DMs about muscle loss. I had kind of hit on this topic a little bit on a podcast and I've been getting a lot of, uh, you know, inboxes and I have all these like similar questions. Do you want to go over them on a podcast? So we literally threw this together today. Um, but I, I really want to make this apparent that None of what we're going over today and none of the information we're covering is in an effort to scare those who have the goal of losing body fat as going into a fat loss focused phase can provide us with so many benefits ranging from body composition improvement, improved health markers like blood glucose or improved blood pressure, um, improved blood lipids, and many others. But our whole point in doing this podcast is not only to educate you guys, but also to have you realize that everything in everything in life and especially within like physique enhancement, there are drawbacks, especially if we don't do things properly. And so 
this is why a common issue I see people suffer from when dieting, especially within like the gen pop scene, is muscle loss, especially with the prevalence of crash diets and yo-yo dieting. As, you know, we're in the summer right now. There's a lot of people that have wanted to get lean, very lean very quickly and haven't u- utilized the best approach. And this is because if if you were to use a massive calorie deficit, like in a crash dieting scenario, you're more likely to lose muscle because A, our rates of muscle protein synthesis are reduced in a deficit. Our rates of muscle protein breakdown are increased. And there's research that shows that muscle protein breakdown can increase by anywhere between 19 and 28% when in a calorie deficit, which is going to leave you more predisposed towards muscle loss during a diet. And the last thing that a lot of people don't consider is that when we're in a deficit, our body ends up using more protein for fuel. And this pretty much occurs due to lack of calories and a reduction in energy substrates like carbs and fats because we're reducing those. So our body is now looking to not only the exogenous proteins we take in, so dietary proteins as fuel, but it's also going, if it doesn't have enough of that, it's going to start essentially utilizing muscle tissue to break down and provide the amino acids it needs. So if you don't take an, you know, an intelligent approach to losing body fat, you're going to predispose yourself towards muscle loss. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. And it's kind of, to kind of simplify the concept of muscle protein synthesis versus muscle protein breakdown. I really like to simplify this. Like, let's imagine we have one guy on one side of the wall. We have a brick wall. We have one guy on one side of the wall laying bricks. That's muscle protein synthesis. We have one guy on the other side. He's pulling bricks out of the wall. That's muscle protein breakdown. This is very simplified. But again, like if that wall gets bigger, muscle protein synthesis is happening quicker than muscle protein breakdown. Cool. Mm-hmm. We're building bigger bro- muscle and vice versa. I think that's kind of an easy way for the listener to visualize that. Now, what's interesting about that analogy is a lot of people don't realize that muscle protein turnover takes place on a 24-hour basis. So it isn't like, say you stack those bricks, you do a weight training workouts that's sufficiently stimulative, you have high protein intake, you put, put bricks up. However, throughout the course of the day, in between those peaks of muscle protein synthesis, bricks are being pulled off. Because right. your body's utilizing them. So throughout the whole course of the day, we're in a state of protein turnover where our rates of muscle protein synthesis and breakdown are flip-flopping essentially. So if you're in an energy deficit and you're not taking in sufficient calories, or especially if you're not taking in sufficient protein, you're going to lead yourself to having more bricks being taken down than you even have a chance to put back up. So we really have to, you know, we'll talk about later on some dietary interventions, but I'm really big into protein distribution as a way to offset some of this uh, muscle protein breakdown or catabolic effect that comes with dieting. Cool. All right. Let's dig into then how our dietary approach is going to impact both muscle mass and metabolic rate. Yeah. So this is really interesting, the research on this. Um, you know, if you look into either fasting type diets or starvation type diets, that's how they label them, but it's more like the Minnesota semi-starvation study. Okay. You'll see that 50% of weight of weight loss comes from fat and then 50% comes from muscle, which is going to significantly decrease your metabolic rate. So within the Minnesota semi-starvation study, we saw a 40% reduction in their total daily energy expenditure. And that was 15% more than was expected by the amount of body mass that they lost. But we also have to keep in mind, they lost 25% of their body weight. So that was an extreme diet. They were on a 50% calorie deficit. It was, you know, they, they labeled the study Minnesota semi-starvation study. Now, then we also have research from Don Lehman's lab that showed by just increasing your protein intake to 1.6 per day, which is the lower end of the threshold. If you look into like the, the uh, Morton meta-analysis that uh, Eric Helms is on, the suggested intake for optimizing muscle protein synthesis is between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per day, um, grams per kilogram per day. And so with that, we see that 
that level, just going to 1.6 will change the ratio during a weight loss phase to 75% of the weight you lose being from fat mass and only 25% being from fat-free mass. But also layman's group again, and, and for anyone that isn't familiar with uh, Dr. Dan Lehman, that's who Lane Norton got his, his um, uh, PhD from. So this is one of the best protein metabolism researchers in addition to Stu Phillips. So those guys are like the lead prominent uh, researchers in the field of protein metabolism. But his lab did another scenario where they utilize high protein intake plus resistance training, and they found that you could reduce the loss of lean mass to just 5%. So it went from, you know, initially when they were fasting, you know, fasting or utilizing a 50% calorie deficit with low protein, they're losing 50% of their weight from muscle to now just 5%. So by protecting muscle more, they preserve more of their metabolic rate, but this is, you know, going to depend on your dietary and training approach. And so we have to realize that it's really all about the, the approach that we take and the dietary interventions that we utilize during the diet, as that's what's going to have the biggest influence on our ability to not only preserve muscle tissue, but with that preservation of muscle tissue, we're going to be able to um, preserve our metabolic rate as well. Absolutely. And if you like just listen to those numbers, a 50%, like a 50 50 ratio of fat loss versus muscle loss versus a 95 5, like that is going to be a completely different physique at the end and of the I also have to put the caveat. So if you really actually look into the study findings, and this is, I'm a, a research nerd. So I'm looking through all, Jeremiah knows this, all the methodology, the reason they found a 5% reduction, it could have been 0%. But the thing that a lot of people don't consider fat mass. So when we actually look at fat mass, it, it isn't comprised of just adipose tissue. So adipose tissue actually has a component of lean mass in it. So adipose tissue is within the 80 percentile of fat free of fat mass, but it also has a small percentage of lean mass. So anytime you lose fat tissue, even if you lose exclusively fat mass, you will lose a little bit of lean uh, lean mass with it. So it gets you know counted when they do the analyses as a loss of, of fat free mass. Okay. Okay. That makes complete sense. So from your perspective, then what are going to be the most important diet considerations when it comes to maintaining muscle? Okay. So the first thing I'm going to do is I always look to increase protein intake, especially with clients that come to me that aren't even eating a sufficient amount of protein. And we know from research that being in a deficit causes both reductions in muscle protein synthesis and then increases in muscle protein breakdown, which leave us more likely to lose muscle. So this is why I'm a big believer in increasing protein intake during a fat loss phase. So as far as a nutritional lever goes, pulling the high protein level lever is extremely helpful when losing body fat and improving body composition um, as protein will help us preserve muscle tissue, especially in the deficit. And we even see in research from like Stu Phillips lab, this was a study that we went through the long lens study we did on one of the podcasts that we did together, where they showed that even in a 40% calorie deficit, when they raised subject protein intake to 2.4 grams per kilogram, they were able to preserve all their lean body mass when it was combined with resistance training. So 2.4 grams per kilogram, as well as with resistance training, they preserved all their muscle tissue, even in a 40% calorie deficit, which is pretty aggressive. And also we've seen that protein has been shown to increase metabolic rate and has the highest thermic effect of feeding, which impacts the energy side out of the energy balance equation. So say we eat a thousand, you know, a thousand calories of protein, you eat 250 grams of protein per day. Well, you're only going to net out around 700 calories out of those. And that's because protein causes our body to burn additional calories when we eat it in comparison to the same amount of calories from carbs and fat. So we're essentially getting free, you know, free calorie burn with, with that being said, we also see that 
protein in and of itself is the most satiating macronutrient and it allows us to feel fuller. So this is going to help us be more adherent to our diet and be able to stick to our calorie budget better. And another aspect of protein is that it helps with metabolic health, both from an insulin sensitivity and a nutrient partitioning perspective. So it's going to help us partition more of our nutrients in a, um, more optimal capacity. So the carbs that we do take in, we're going to be able to shuttle them a little bit better. It's going to help with blood glucose fluctuations. It's going to help with blood sugar management. So there's a lot of benefits, both from a physique perspective, but then also from a metabolic perspective. So we're getting, you know, a lot of bang for our buck with protein. So I always use that lever first, as I find that to be the most effective, both from a physique standpoint, a body composition standpoint, but also from a dietary adherence perspective. Okay, absolutely. So protein is a very important piece of that. Now, when it comes to the size of the deficit, something I've heard is that we can only lose about 30 calories per pound of body fat per day. Is that accurate? That's the output study that you're referring to. So that was 31 calories per... You definitely listened to one of my podcasts because I went over that study. Um, the output study. So that was a theoretical study based on the Minnesota semi-starvation study. So in two, I believe in 2005... A researcher by the last name of Alpert looked into the rate at which we can oxidize uh, fatty acids from fat tissue, but it's dependent on your amount of fat mass. So what he found was the upper echelon was 31 calories per pound of fat tissue. So that would be the max. But when it really comes down to um, the dietary approach and how much we can oxidize fat, it's going to be completely dependent on your starting level of body fat. So when my, my approach really depends on the starting point of the client themselves. And essentially what I like to do is I kind of use like a dynamic system in which, in, in how I approach fat loss. So, you know, we, we have to realize that whether or not you retain or lose muscle in a diet mostly comes from, comes down to the nutritional approach you take, especially from a calorie perspective. Mm -hmm. So we often see that those that take more of a crash dieting approach to dieting where they cut their calories by half or even more, leave themselves more predisposed to muscle loss, not only due to the massive energy deficit, but also due to the detrimental impact it has on their training performance and ability to train effectively to maintain that stimulus needed to preserve muscle. So with my clients, I like to take more of a dynamic approach to fat loss in terms of their actual rate of loss. So I'll start a fat loss phase at a more aggressive rate of loss based on the fact that A, they're starting at a higher calorie threshold. B, they have their highest amount of body fat that they're going to have for that phase. So we have more endogenous and exogenous sources of energy. So we have more calories in, first of all, and we also have more endogenous body fat stores to liberate, mobilize, and utilize from the body itself. So I'll start with a more aggressive rate of loss. So that could be 1% or even a little bit above that. And then from there, I'll readjust the rate of loss based on weight change. As the lighter we become, the same rate of loss of weight loss will actually be a larger percentage of body weight loss. So if we were to proceed, proceed at the same weekly target, it would actually be a larger weekly target. So for instance, Jeremiah, when you first came to me, we did a 1% rate of loss. You started at about 200 pounds. We, we've been losing at two pounds per week, but we're, if you notice, I haven't made any nutritional adjustments in the last like two, two check-ins. So we're going to eventually slow that rate of loss down. And that's going to happen for multiple reasons. Metabolic adaptation is going to kick in. We're doing a mini cut. So it's a little bit more aggressive. This isn't, you know, um, we can't really extrapolate this out to a long-term fat loss right. phase, but I'll often start with clients and I'll start at one, 1.25% per week. And then I'll slowly, you know, I'll, I'll readily slow it down. And essentially how I like to look at it as it's almost like a chart. And obviously those that are listening to the podcast can't see like you know, the, my hands and like how I'm doing it, but essentially as a person gets leaner, 
the, the rate of loss slows down for multiple reasons. As you get leaner, you're going to be more likely to lose muscle. So I want to slow that rate of loss to preserve muscle tissue and training performance. Now, at the start of the diet, when someone has higher body fat, more energy on board, doing a larger deficit, a larger net deficit is going to be less impactful to not only their training, but to their muscle preservation perspective because they have more body fat. However, as the diet, we get deeper into the diet, I'll transition to a moderate rate of loss and then a slow rate of loss. So kind of how it looks is it's a trajectory where we start quick and then we, we moderately, we go moderate and then into a slow rate of loss. And with that, what I really like to do is lower the net deficit by adding in refeeds, by adding in diet breaks, things like that to slow down their, their total weight of loss and kind of refresh um, them from both a physiological perspective, but as well as a psychological perspective. Okay, absolutely. So essentially, as we get leaner, we want to take things a little bit slower. Absolutely. And what I really see that to be is I personally like to aim for an average rate of loss between 0.5 to 1% of total body weight loss per week throughout the course of the actual fat loss phase itself. So me and you, you and I are doing a mini cut, so it's different. So it's not extrapolated out. But if I have someone at a 12 week fat loss phase per se, I might start at 1%, but by the end, I might be at 0.25%, but they're average throughout the entire course. So I just had this with a prep client. They started at 1.1%. 1.1%. It was just, that's how the deficit came out. It was 1.1%. His, his last couple of weeks were at 0.25%. When I did the actual figure throughout the course of the 16 week prep that he was on, his average rate of weekly weight loss was 0.4%. Okay. okay. Due to the refeeds, due to the diet breaks that I threw in and all that. So he, he actually ended up at a very moderate rate, but he completely preserved all his muscle tissue. And if you go onto my Instagram, you could see his name's Ryan. Uh, came in with a great right. look, best conditioning today. I mean, he was he sliced. He, he got second in both classes in the contest, but he lost to the overall winner. So, you know, no harm, no foul in, in his, uh, his second show to date. So it was a very competitive show, but he did phenomenal. But when someone would see, you know, a lot of times in, in our industry, everything's black and white. So they see, oh, Brandon started at 1.1. So that's aggressive. Yeah, I started the first week at 1.1 because he was in a massive surplus when we started. So his maintenance calories were inflated from that. And so the first week he lost at 1.1, but already after the first or second week, by the time I did the second adjustment, he was losing under 1% per week. And then we have to think about the averages over time. You can't ever isolate one week and look at it and say, oh, that's the rate of loss. No, we have to look at the average rate of loss because your body perceives averages, just like we can't look at one day on the calendar and say, this is your weight. No, it's a seven-day rolling average. That's what your actual weight is. It doesn't matter that you had a rough night of sleep the night before and your weight fluctuated up due to stress. That's that's not a um, meaningful depiction. I always tell my clients, one day scale weight is practically meaningless. It means nothing. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes complete sense. So then talk us through, from your perspective, how should protein distribution look when we're trying to maximize muscle retention? Yeah. So protein distribution is, is another component that I like looking at that I feel like a lot of people overlook within the, the dieting scenario, because we see a lot of people talk about intermittent fasting. This is actually an interesting conversation I've had with Alan Aragon. He doesn't believe in this and, and that's all well and good. We can, we can interpret research differently. He, his side is that in intermittent fasting research, we don't see people lose less body fat by utilizing an intermittent fasting approach that has less protein feedings. And he's completely right same rate of fat loss because the same net deficit. However, my whole thing is when it comes to improving our body composition, where the goal is to lose body fat while maintaining all our muscle tissue, 
we already know that protein is the most component, important component of the diet that we need to nail. And when I have clients in a fat loss phase, my top priority is to make sure that they get enough protein in daily. But the next priority is making sure we optimally distribute it to maximize their levels of muscle protein synthesis and rates of anabolism because dieting is an inherently catabolic process. So think about it. If we go over some of the metabolic adaptation research that we've went over in a previous podcast, you'll see that our, our, we have increased rates of muscle protein breakdown. We have decreased rates of muscle protein synthesis, and we have higher rates of catabolic hormones and lower rates of anabolic hormones. So when you get very lean, you'll see reductions in serum testosterone and in estrogen in females. And we're talking very lean, 10% or, or lower, but we also see increases in cortisol. And cortisol is not only counter-regulatory to something like leptin, so it, it hurts our energy availability status, but it's also counter-regulatory and counter-inhibitory towards testosterone and anabolic hormone production. So when cortisol is high, even outside of a deficit, it will lower your anabolic sex hormone concentrations. So with that being said, we want to do whatever we can to not only manage stress, but also manage anabolic or catabolic and anabolic activities. And so a few ways we can do that is through a properly uh, periodized resistance training program, but also through protein distribution. Because when we eat protein, we especially if you hit the leucine threshold, which is approximately three grams per, per serving of leucine, you will trigger an anabolic activity. So you will maximize muscle protein synthesis, which gets us out of a net catabolic state. So my whole thing is I want to make sure that we're getting in a sufficient amount of protein feedings because we don't have anywhere in the body to store excess protein. Whereas we have, you know, when it comes to carbs and fats, we have adipose tissue to store fats in. We have glycogen stores to store carbs in. So the timing of that, despite it having some influence, it's not as, um, it's not as dependent on timing in terms of we don't have to have carbs all around. We can have carbs just around the, the peri-workout window and be fine and restore glycogen, have enough to train and have enough to replenish glycogen. But if we don't eat carbs at outside of that, that peri-workout window, like we've talked about in the nutrient timing podcast we did together, it's not going to hurt your glycogen storage because you can actually store that. And with muscle glycogen, we do not tap into muscle glycogen and actually burn it unless we work that specific muscle group in and of itself. Same thing with fat tissue. We will be able to store that long-term until we have to tap into that. And during a fat loss phase, the goal is to tap into that. Whereas we don't have anywhere in the body to store excess protein. I think a lot of people think that muscle tissue is a storage depot for protein, but that isn't the case because here's the thing. If muscle tissue was a storage depot for amino acids where we could exogenously just keep taking from that, we could protein overfeed and gain more muscle tissue as a result of that. But that's not what we see. I mean, we can eat excess protein by all means. We're still going to um, be able to absorb it and we'll end up oxidizing or burning more protein, but we don't store it in actual muscle tissue. So when we're in a deficit, we need to make sure that we distribute our protein feedings in a way that ensures that we have amino acids available in the blood throughout the day, which will help to protect our muscle tissue. And if we actually look at the current literature, it indicates that consuming a protein-rich meal causes muscle protein synthesis levels to last and peak around three hours, which is why we want to aim for a protein feeding or serving around every three to four hours to spread it throughout the course of the day. So what I like to do with clients is have them split their total protein intake over four to six meals per day based on their schedule, their preference, and what they can consistently stick to. Because that way, we, at least if they're getting four protein servings, and this is the other thing with the intermittent fasting research, we do have some from Grant Tinsley that shows that preservation of muscle tissue was the same. However, he utilized four protein servings. So they utilize a protein serving around 
pre and post workout, and then two other full meals. So they had four protein hits, four protein boluses that maximize the leucine threshold. So even within that, we see that it still hits that minimum threshold of the current literature. Okay. So it sounds like when we're looking at like four versus, for example, five servings spread out by three to four hours, is there going to be like any tangible difference between four and five servings there? None that we could see in the literature. So there's a review actually with Alan Aragon on it. Um, it's by Brad Schoenfeld. I forget the the title of it, but it was it came out a few years ago, and it was essentially um, nutrient con- or nutritional considerations to maximize protein anabolism and and essentially uh, muscle hypertrophy. And their recommendation was at least your protein at least 0.55 grams per kilogram four times per day. Okay. At a minimum, you could go up to six. That's not necessary, but at least that four times per day was there was the recommendation. And we also see that there's there's research by Aretta that looks at protein spacing, or at the time they called it protein pacing. And what they did was they utilized different uh, feeding frequencies. And I believe this paper was from 2012. Was the first of its kind. What they did was they took young, you know, college age males, and they saw that the protein synthetic effect was um, maximized from 20 grams of whey protein in these individuals. So what they did was they decided to do different protein feedings, different protein spacings over the same uh, window. So they either did, they did four, they did an 80 gram amount of whey protein. So this was very, uh, a very low amount, to be honest with you. These were untrained individuals, low body weight. However, just to prove the point, they either did eight servings of 10 grams per day four servings of 20 grams or two servings of 40 grams. And they saw the most, the best muscle gain response or the best muscle protein synthetic response from four servings of 20 per day. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So it sounds like that four servings. And I I know you said about 0.55 grams per kg is a pretty good rule, correct? Yeah. So that would actually, if you do the math, 2.2 2.2 grams per kilogram was the recommendation by Morton, which is a meta-analysis on whey protein. We also have to keep in mind with the, if you really go into the literature on this, and this is a little bit getting into the nuances, but a lot of times this is done using whey protein. I come from the sports nutrition industry. So what we have to realize is that whey protein is one of the highest leucine containing protein sources that we have. So what we end up getting with that is a smaller dose, a lower dose of protein from a whey protein isolate per se, which is what they use in the studies, is going to yield a larger amount of leucine and thus a higher protein synthetic response. So for instance, what we see in certain parts of literature is that 40 grams of whey protein will maximize the anabolic response to a full body training session post-workout, both in young and in um, older adults. Well, here's the thing, 40 grams of a whey protein is going to yield you a large dose of leucine because on average, whey protein is about 11 to 13% leucine content depending on the quality of that whey protein isolate. However, if we look at something like chicken or we look at, say, eggs is 9% leucine generally. Chicken is like 8%. So you're getting a lower leucine amount. So you might have to utilize a higher dose of that. Then we also see that within the context, that's within muscle protein synthesis. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob Wolf's lab out of Texas did a study looking at 35 grams of a whole food protein source compared to 70. And I believe they used beef. With 35, it did not maximize the protein synthetic response and minimize muscle protein breakdown. However, when they utilize a 70 gram dose, it maximized both, both muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. So we, we have both sides of the equation. Remember, we're not just thinking about synthesis 
You also have to think about breakdown during a deficit. So I actually specifically have you utilize oh, 70 grams of protein post-workout. Yeah. And so that's, I'm trying to counter some of those things. Now, these are very nuanced things. These aren't, you know, you're an advanced trainee and I'm known for taking people from advanced to the next level. So these are little things that we dial in the nutrient time. And you know, you know, I'm very specific with many things, especially within the context of one-on-one -on -one coaching. However, as a general recommendation, we're shooting for 2.2 grams per kilogram per day at a minimum. That's one gram per pound. So pretty much just divide that over four doses. So we can look at that as 0.25 grams per pound per meal, four times a day. Okay. Just as a simple, you know, uh, heuristic. Super straightforward. Okay, perfect. So anything else that you wanted to dig into then as far as how you approach fat loss phases for clients to maintain as much muscle tissue as possible? No, you know, I use that dynamic approach where uh, I kind of slow down the rate of loss, but I will say that I did want to go over a little bit because I did get a question specifically on rate of loss and fast versus slow weight loss. And I think there's a lot of considerations to make here. However, there was a recent study and it was a systematic review and meta-analysis uh, that, that was done last year, or maybe it was in the beginning of this year that looked at fast versus slow weight loss and compared studies where groups lost a similar amount of total weight. And that's really an important consideration because generally when we look at fast versus slow weight loss studies, the fast group has lost a significantly more amount of weight. And so sometimes we see that as greater success. And there's a lot of ways to debate that, but it's really hard to contextualize it when it's two different lengths of a study, two different rates of loss, two different total amounts of weight loss. So they actually did, they try to equate them. And the goal was to see out of the two approaches, what approach led to the most amount of fat loss, lean body mass preservation, and the smallest drops in resting metabolic rate. And so what they saw was when they did the whole meta regression was that slow weight loss groups lost a bit more fat mass and maintained a bit more fat free mass. And thus the slower weight loss group lost more body fat because think about it, they lost more fat mass and, and uh, retained more fat-free mass than the fast weight loss groups for the same amount of total weight loss. And so the faster weight loss group had a slightly larger reduction in resting metabolic rate, and that was due to the fact that they lost a little bit more fat-free mass. Now, I, I have to make the caveat that when you actually look into the study, I believe it was a 58-calorie difference in resting metabolic rate. So this is like less than an apple. It, was, it wasn't significant. And there are limitations within the study. And this is where people kind of like, they extrapolate research out and they mis-extrapolate. So we have to realize that within the context of a lot of weight loss studies, they aren't as applicable to our population. They do give us some indications. Like I always tell people, research is a guideline. It provides us with a canvas. And then us as um, practitioners, as coaches, we need to essentially take our tools and then create a sculpture, create a masterpiece or create a, a a work of art. And so that's the difference. There's both a science to coaching and then there's an art to coaching. And so within the limitations, most of the study, like I, I had dug through this. And so within the, this study, they didn't have a resistant training arm. So they weren't resistant training. So we don't have the benefit of retaining um, muscle mass as well as resting metabolic rate in that. They also use very low calorie diets in the fast weight loss group. So we're looking at an average of 800 calorie diets. Damn. And then the because they utilize such low calorie diets, the low the low calorie diets or the fast weight loss group also had a low protein intake and a lower carb intake. Like even the average carb intake for the low protein or for the fast rate of uh, fat loss group was around 60 grams per day. So really when you look into the actual full findings of the study, they found that the slow weight loss group was a little bit better. However, overall, what they found was a rate of 0.5 to 1% rate of loss metric that other research has reinforced. And that's actually what I take as an average with my clients 
was pointed to being the most effective way or most effective rate of loss um, for maximizing fat loss and maintaining muscle tissue. So across multiple lines of, of research, we see that in bodybuilding case studies. We see that in uh, meta-analyses on fast versus slow weight loss. There's so many pieces of literature that reinforce that target weight loss that it's not that you have to do, and this is the issue I have with some of these studies because they compare and contrast fast versus slow. And so people will think slow is like snail's pace. Now, the issue with that is, and the reason I don't do that is because we have to realize a lot of people, they make the mistake of starting one of two ways. They either start too, too aggressively, they slash their calories in half, or they start in the opposite. They make a five to 10% reduction. Now, here's the thing, guys. You have to realize that maintenance is a range. So I've had many clients over the years that their maintenance calories are three to four, within a, a range of three to 400 calories. Okay. So say that you're at 3,000 calories and you decide to make a 5% reduction. That's 150 calories. So you can make that reduction and think you're in a deficit. You've technically lowered your calories. You've lowered your intake. Mentally, you are in an energy deficit. Mentally, you are restricted. Mentally, you are eating less, but your body is physiologically receiving that as maintenance calories. So it downregulates your energy expenditure. Maybe you move a little bit less and you suffer mentally from the fact that you've been on the diet a week or two, but you don't see any results. So that's where I would rather start off the bat with a more aggressive or, or what I call, I like to really refer to it not as aggressive, but rather as assertive and effective. Let's make a large chunk off the front. Let's get some wins. Let's get some momentum. That's where your body fat is highest. Your calories are highest and your motivation is highest. Think about it. At the start of a diet, most of us are motivated. Especially right. the clientele we have, they want to lose weight. And then we can always add calories back in. But if you start off slow and you lose time and you had a goal that was time oriented, you, you needed to you know be done with a contest prep in 16 weeks or for you, you have a specific event in two weeks. I mean, we have 15 days to get you ready. And so, you know, when you came to me, we had six weeks total, but we still had an end date that we wanted to be done and already reversing out of it. And so I would rather move quick off the bat and then slow down the rate of loss. Once we've gotten some wins, we've gotten some positive momentum, we've gotten some fat loss rather than do the opposite. Whereas I see a lot of people take an approach where they start slow and steady. And when they're actually already metabolically adapted, they're already dietarily fatigued, both physically and mentally, then they have to start pushing it because their end dates coming up and they have way too much body fat to lose still. Absolutely. And I, I think from a client buy-in perspective, as much as anything, I think that starting a little bit more aggressively oftentimes makes a lot of sense. And honestly, we could probably debate that back and forth because there's also situations where like, hey, can the client actually adhere to an aggressive diet? Depending on like how, I think this also depends a lot on the population of client that you're working. 100%. You have to know your clientele. You have to know their diet history. You have to know their predilections. You have to know their mindset, their motivation. Are they a chronic dieter? Um, what is your relationship like with food? What is their dieting history in terms of how they mentally view energy deficits? Are they a chronic dieter that's had a really bad experience? You know, so you have to take so many things into consideration with coaching. So I really do want to make this apparent. Like often I get on podcasts and people want a black and white answer. And right. Jeremiah, I'm sure you can relate to this. They want you to give them like the one be all end all answer. And I can't do that. And the reason for that is because there is so much context to be taken into consideration because I work individually. I don't do, I've never done group coaching. I don't do group coaching, none of that. And so I work with people one-on-one. -on -one. So everything that I answer on an individual or on a client basis is individualized to that client. So when I get on a podcast, I have to give the information or I try to give the information that will serve the general person. However, you might not be the general person. You might not be the 50% the, the that I'm demographic I'm talking to. But if you were to ask me personally, and I went over all your, 
your entire intake and we did a consultation, I might decide or I might see this isn't this piece of advice is not applicable to you whatsoever. So always keep that in mind. I'm trying to educate people and just inspire critical thought or critical thinking. However, this isn't tailored towards you because I can't answer, you know, I get a lot of DMs per day, but I can't answer everyone in a specific manner because I would love to, but I have a full client load to, to work with. And I'm very, you know, interactive as Jeremiah knows, as well as I, I if I was just doing that, if I answered every DM that I do or, you know, in depth in the way that I would like to, I would not be able to coach people one-on-one. Right. So it would, that would be my full-time job would be Instagram. And that's why we get on these podcasts. Right. But at the same time, I also just want to highlight the fact that we actually have a large body of literature that shows that faster weight loss at the beginning of the diet does uh, predict uh, greater weight loss success. So that doesn't mean fast weight loss in and of itself. That means at the beginning of the diet, having um, a quicker rate of progress and rate of loss predicts greater uh, retention of uh, weight loss long-term because those people are more likely to have stuck with the diet because they saw progress early on. They stuck with it. Even if it slowed down, they eventually slowed down their rate of loss. So they're more likely to stay throughout the entire process. And that we all know that this is really... Yes, it is about the dietary approach. It is about, you know, the the nutritional approach, but it's also about your adherence and your consistency. So if you get some some wins off the bat, you feel motivated, you see progress, you see that your work is paying off, you're going to be more likely to stick with that program and buy into it and then have longer lasting effects long term. Absolutely. I love it. And I really think the dynamics that seem laid out of looking at it of over the course of the diet, we're averaging around 0. 0.5 to 1% of body weight lost. I think that makes a lot of sense. All right, I know you don't have too much time here, so I'm going to try to make this a succinct question, but I did want to ask your take on training volume when we're dieting. Again, this has come up with several people for whatever reason. Um, uh, this concept that we can potentially maintain muscle tissue doing about a ninth of an amount, if the volume that we would need to build said tissue. But I also think like a lot of people are misinterpreting this and not taking like in the context of, Hey, we are an aggress- We are dieting. There are so many other factors that come into this. So like when we're looking at training volume mm-hmm. and the amount of volume that we're doing, I know like in a deficit probably isn't a good place for us to try to push volume extremely high. We're really going to struggle to recover from that. But is there kind of a minimum, minimal threshold? And this is of course, going to be speaking in generalities that you're looking at from a volume perspective when we're in a deficit to make sure our client's maintaining mass. All right. So my mindset, when it comes to training during a diet, um, my whole goal is to maintain an adequate training stimulus. And I think that a lot of people like what you're referring to is, and I've, I've heard this concept and I've, you know, I've went back and forth with individuals and even clients about it. I think many look at, uh, simply look at resistance training as a way to maintain muscle tissue during a diet. Whereas I like to approach it, you know, training with the intention of building and growing muscle, even during a deficit, because by training in a manner that's designed to build muscle, you're certainly going to maintain it. So it's more of the mindset. I'm not saying you take the same approach that you would to a building phase, but I think we have to realize muscle growth is a signal dependent process. So if we, we focus our energy, our intention, our programming on providing our bodies with a progressive training stimulus, we're going to be able to send a strong uh, signal to build muscle or at the very least to maintain every ounce of it that we have. So we know that being in a calorie deficit is a catabolic process as we're literally doing so to break down and lose body fat. So we should look at leveraging training as one of the largest stimulators of anabolism to counteract this catabolism of the deficit. 
So if you don't maintain a proper stimulus through your training, your body literally has no reason to keep around the muscle that it has. So what I like to do in terms of looking at training is you're referring to the minimum amount of training volume needed to maintain muscle in an energy, uh, in energy balance or in a surplus. So you're referring to a study by Bickle and it was done on untrained individuals and they looked at older adults and they looked at young individuals. Mm -hmm. And so with the one ninth, the one ninth was enough to maintain strength, to maintain all their muscle tissue and keep progressing. It was one third. So that was what we would call their minimum effective volume. And so they took guys, I think it was 27 sets per, per workout and they reduced it to nine sets per, per week. And how they did that was they had people training three days per week. And what they did was they just dropped it down to one session per week. And that was the one third training group. And within that group, they maintained all their cross-sectional area, of their muscles, so all their muscle tissue in a very accurate way of measuring it. And they, they even gained strength throughout the course of that one third. But we have to realize that that was, they were eating a sufficient amount of calories and these weren't highly trained individuals. So could I tell Jeremiah, who's in an energy deficit right now, listen, we can, we can reduce your training volume by a third. No. That wouldn't be enough of a stimulus. So really how I like to look at it is it's, it's even a dynamic approach to training. So how I like to look at it is how are their, how is their recovery capacity? How is their training performance? Are we seeing performance drop-offs? What is their fatigue indices like? I would rather take an auto-regulatory approach, and I do this in, in all contexts. However, how I like doing it is setting them at a baseline volume and seeing where we can go from there. Meaning, I will be less inclined to increase volume throughout the course of a mesocycle unless necessitated, which in your case, you weren't feeling your connection to your back and your biceps. So I increased volume by a very small amount. However, we actually see a meta-analysis on training volume during deficit that higher volume training programs are more conducive to maintaining muscle tissue than lower volume training programs. So to take and say someone was already on a moderate training volume, they were at 15, 15 sets per, say 10 sets per week. And I was to drop them to a third of their training volume, training three to four sets. It might not be a sufficient amount to maintain training stimulus. And this is where we would go back to like, say Mike Isretel, who has an argument, which I'm not saying I'm in a full agreement with it, but he would actually say that you would need to maintain even a higher level, closer to your maximum recoverable volume or to your maximum adaptive volume, because there are so many or catabolic processes in the system from being in an energy deficit that you have to counteract that with an anabolic stimulus from training. Whereas I'm more of a middle of the road approach where I don't like to proactively reduce training volume during a cutting phase. However, if the recovery capacity indicates that that is needed, they have high fatigue, then I'll utilize that. Where actually what I really like to do is to, and, and you know this because you work with me personally, I don't do preset and pre-program deloading. So I don't have a paradigm, meaning a lot of individuals will utilize a four to one paradigm, four weeks of progressing. It's already pre-planned. They're going to, every week it's going to increase uh, volume and decrease um, reps and reserve. They're going to add a set to every exercise. You know, it's kind of like the RP style. And then after week four, they're going to deload. And that's regardless of if you were fatigued, whatever, if that's the end of your cycle, you're going into a deload. What I like to do is really rely on biofeedback. So my adjustments week to week are going to be based on that client's biofeedback. But there are times that within the context of a off season per se, or during a building phase, I might go six weeks with a client and then they'll need a deload and I'll see all the fatigue indices. So they'll have central fatigue, peripheral fatigue. Um, you know, stress is high within the context of their life because we have to realize we have fatigue that's accumulated through training and then lifestyle fatigue. So we even see that people are less responsive to training during times of high stress, as well as during times of low sleep. So that's going to increase fatigue in 
outside of training parameters. So we have to take that all into consideration because most of us aren't professional athletes. So we don't have the, you know, uh, we don't have the blessing of just being able to focus on our training. We have a life to, to worry about as well. And so I might, you know, be able to go, a, a client might be able to go six weeks during a building phase before taking a, a deload, but they might only be able to go four weeks before taking a deload. Now, here's the thing. If I see that a client can only go three weeks on a training cycle based on the baseline volume that we're utilizing before they need a deload, like they, they literally need a deload. It's not just psychological, it's physiological. They're having you know, signs of both physical and mental fatigue. That's where I'm going to readjust and lower their baseline volume for the next mesocycle going forward. So we'll go those three weeks, I'll deload them by decreasing volume and decreasing intensity to pull back on all fatigue parameters. We'll dissipate fatigue during that week-long period. They'll be refreshed. When we restart the mesocycle, I'll start them at a lower training volume because now I've seen that this amount of training volume, although it was their base, say they were doing 12 sets per body part per week, that is obviously accumulating way too much fatigue if within three weeks, they've already hit their, their, uh, you know, their smoke point. Okay. Okay. That makes complete sense. Very, very well explained. So it sounds like we definitely don't want to drop down to three sets for everything and just assume we can maintain there. So I appreciate you. No, and I, you know, I don't really like the proactive approach to everything, to anything, honestly. Um, right. I don't think that's coaching. I understand that a lot of people, they'll do that within the context of group coaching. They take a very proactive approach in which everything is pre-programmed. And that looks great on paper. Don't get me wrong. I have a lot of friends and a lot of other coaches that utilize that method. However, I really think that coaching needs to be a reactive and dynamic system because our bodies are extremely adaptive and they're reactive. They're constantly changing. And it's not only us from a physiological perspective, but also from a psychological perspective. So I'll give you an example. I just had a client who was in a body recomposition phase. It's a female, she owns a gym and she wasn't feeling well. She had, you know, wasn't having her menstrual cycle. So I thought it was stress. So I increased her energy availability. She was at maintenance, but you know, we we're in a body recomp. So she was slowly body recomping and her body was looking great. And then for like a week or two, I was noticing higher amounts of water retention, more stress. She had missed her cycle. And so I increased energy availability. So in a lot of the research that we have, there's a study called the refuel study. And what they saw was between the 350 to a 450 calorie increase was enough to restore women that were amenorrheic. Now, mind you, this woman was showing signs of oligomenorrhea. So she was had missed her menstrual cycle, but she had not lost. There was not a cessation of her menstrual cycle. She was just a week off. Right. Turns out she's pregnant. But I had, I, you know, I changed her. I auto-regulated her training. Now, if I had a preset program, I would have kept pushing her. You know what I mean? But I, you know, I deloaded her. I de-stressed her. She, and I actually ended up sending her away for a weekend. I said, listen, I want you to have a refeed meal, have a free meal off plan, you know, go out to dinner with your husband. They went away for the weekend and they had a great time. They come back Monday and she just, she felt sick to her stomach. She said, there's gotta be something wrong. She's pregnant with twins. Damn. Okay. Well, congrats. No, those are, those are absolutely congrats, you know, congrats to her. But with that being said, there are things that come up in life that we would never expect. And so with that coaching is reactive. So now we're in a completely different phase. Obviously I'm feeding her up. Right. However, what we have to realize is that we cannot predict not only our, our clients responses in terms of their body and their physiology, but also their lifestyle, also their stress levels, what's going to happen with their kids, if they're going to have more kids, you know, it, job, work, all these things. We work with people in the real world. And so what I really try to do, I take a reactive approach. And oftentimes that leaves me doing more work week to week within check-ins, yeah. but I'm able to give a more customized service to my clients because it's on the fly. It's, listen, this is what your week's check-in looks like this week. 
I'm going based off this. It's not that I have a, I always say, I hate these set and forget plans that it's, you're doing this because this is what I preset out weeks ago. And this is what looks great in my spreadsheets. No, it's based on what's going on in your life. Absolutely. You have to, you know, this, that's what real world coaching is. I, c- I couldn't agree more, dude. All right, man. I know we're already over time, so I'm going to let you go here. Anything you want to plug outside of the usual? Yeah. So guys, feel free to reach out to me and follow me at brand cruise underscore for any emails, uh, any inquiries, feel free to reach out to me at, um, be to cruise fitness at gmail.com. And then just, uh, check me out on my podcast, the chasing clarity podcast, uh, that drops every Friday. Perfect, dude. I will link all that up in the show notes. And as always, man, thank you for being here. Absolutely, brother.